Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? So today's a little bit different because this is a morning interview for us. And so I have not reached my Clementine period of the day. Ah. Instead, it is my barbecue tea time of the day. Your barbecue tea time of the day. Interesting. Alex, right. our producer, just shuddered with horror because she can't stand the smell of my barbecue tea. <laughs> well, um, we have, it, it can't be worse than what I have subjected our poor guest to. So Graciela Cabana has been visiting uh, the University of Alabama for the last little over 24 hours. And I have the shittiest car and it either smells like mold or weed. Um, Not dog great. saliva, bad dog breath. Well, I covered up the, you know, the dog hair, and I'm apologizing, but I'm like, there's a new smell, and it kind of smells like <laughs> weed, and I don't know why, because there's no weed smoking going on in this car. Did a and skunk she's, get in there? She no, no. She's just being polite, going, well, you know, maybe something. And last night, as I was driving her back, I'm like, I think it's mold. She's like, I didn't want to say anything. I'm just like, oh my god, I'm so mortified. Oh, I also got to oddly track her travel to Alabama because I know that was weird. Gmail yeah. decided to put her flight information into my calendar, which put me into a panic that I was supposed to be somewhere that <laughs> I didn't realize I needed to be. Well, you know, it's funny though that that like all of this stuff, like these logistics, are are a thing that we we tend to talk about in our academic series. And I had invited Graciela on because I'm really fascinated by what she's doing with um, ancient DNA and and contemporary understandings of genomics among uh, the Argentine people she works with. But she sent us this article that really. Uh, further problematizes biocultural anthropology in ways that we have talked about, we were talking about at the meetings and that just become more and more of an issue. Like, you know, this, I, the, the, the misconceptions that we're academics, so we have lots of money and we have disposable income to be able to put up front to go to field school and, and in time. my case, come home and have a car that actually runs. Huh. And, you but know, also, without, like the time commitment the time. Uh, of yeah. like, you know, we often specialize in our own area, which is why we collaborate because other people specialize. But as, you know, Graciela contends, you also need to take the time to familiarize yourself with that other specialty. And, and that's a lot of effort that has to go in there. For sure. So let's bring her in. And, and as she comes in, we'll note she's a associate professor Biological anthropology, there she is at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And she is kind enough to come down to Alabama to give a talk called Genetic Ancestry, Race, and National Belonging in Argentina. And she sent us an article. Graciela, is the article in press or is it in review or is it? So, uh, as Chris said, when everything cut out, unfortunately, with the internet, which is a typical thing with these interviews, uh, that you have a piece out. What stage is it at with American anthropologists? Is it accepted in press? Where? Where are well, we at in that process? Um, Do we know what to say about it? I guess it would be, it's it should be coming out in early view soon. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah we just want to make sure uh, we're, we're not like uh, broaching an embargo or anything. So the article is called Crossing at Your or Our Own Peril, right? With the slash in there, because we're talking about other anthropologists and ourselves, biocultural boundary crossing in anthropology. So we always start off as, as we discussed yesterday, Graciela with your origin story. I know a little bit about it, but do tell. What's your background? What got you interested in anthropology? What was your, your path? How did you decide to choose it as a career and why UT Knoxville? Well, I was a political science major at UC Berkeley. 
and I was close to graduating. I needed some kind of a natural science class to graduate. A friend of mine suggested that I take Introduction to Physical Anthropology, which is what it was called at the time. So I took it. It was taught by uh, Tim White. It's a very large class and I was enchanted by it. It was a very different view of humanity than what I had been used to with political science. And also I was lured by the objects, the shiny objects, which were, you know, the casts of the fossil hominins in the labs. And that probably came from my dissatisfaction at that time with political science, where it was just really hard to grasp what was going on. And at least with this, there was something on the table that I could talk about. But I, uh, I went ahead and graduated and I worked as a paralegal because I was political science. So I was thinking I would possibly go into law. And there was a particular moment in, in that short career that I had as a paralegal that really stuck with me, which was that we were working um, late at night on some case. And I remember one of the lead lawyers, I mean, it was late at night, probably at around 10. And I remember seeing him coming out of the bathroom stumbling because he was so tired. And it was, and that was like a key moment for me. At that point, I thought, if I have to work in this society, <laughs> then I better be doing something that I really enjoy doing. And so my mind immediately turned to the anthropology class that I had taken, how much I had enjoyed it. It was the only class where I read the textbook joyfully, like on my own, because I thought it was interesting. So I, um, I took a day off of work and went to uh, two professors' office hours to ask them about what to do. So I went back to Berkeley for a year and took any in anthropology. And a class that was open was medical anthropology. And I have to say that as much as I like introduction to physical anthropology, and I stuck with that, right? It, it was medical anthropology, like that was that class just blew my mind. It was the only class that I had taken in college that I felt really like just completely shifted my perception or my worldviews like the other way around. And, and it was also that class that made me really aware of the power of anthropology, whether it's realized or not, which is that it, it has the power to show you that there are other ways of being in this world and of becoming in this world as a human. Um, and and I, I wanted to be part of that. So I then took sort of another year off to, to work on graduate school applications. So I was going full steam ahead with anthropology. I worked as a paralegal again, because I knew I could get a job in that for a while. And then I worked at a, at a CRM firm as a human osteologist. Um, and then I, went to grad school at, at University of Michigan, Kara. <laughs> um, we'll do the and, go blue because all roads lead back to Michigan as Chris is <laughs> unfortunately realizing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and kudos to Tim White, right? Because the path that I followed took me to University of Michigan, right? Had I done a master's degree somewhere, who knows where I would be exactly right now. Yeah. But he was so, a Michigan grad as well, uh, because he was a Milford student like you. Yes, yes. And so, right. 
Um, I, I had forgotten about that connection. So at University of Michigan. Okay, so at University of Michigan. So I really went in, I think at that time, you could still get away with writing really like obscure <laughs> uh, letters of intent. <laughs> but I really had in my mind that I wanted to do paleoanthropology. Um, but what I was doing in my graduate career was trying to figure out some kind of a project where I could combine um, biological anthropology and archaeology. I wanted to combine the biological with the social in some way. And I was attempting to do that in paleoanthropology, and there really wasn't an easy route. Um, and then during my time there, the university hired a, an anthropological geneticist. And then I became really interested in the ways in which you could use the tool of DNA to address some of the social questions at that point within archaeology that other methods could not at that time. And so I went ahead and um, I thought of a, a project that I wanted to work on. And I started working under this new person. His name was Andy Merriweather. And so really, I went into working with DNA because I was interested in, in certain kinds of Question and questions that combine biological and cultural. There really wasn't any like particular question in that that I was interested in, but more I was interested in doing conducting the combination. Um, but that got me into genetics, and um, without really uh, choosing to 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 do this or not, I developed the 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 set of expertise in genetics, and then all of a sudden I was in a geneticist within anthropology. Um, and so that, um, so as that, at that time, I, I, uh, I think one of the things that happens as a graduate student that you realize is that if you're going to do this thing and you need to market yourself as this thing, then you need to show that you can do all the things that people representing that label, that category do, right? So, um, so the work that I ended up doing for my dissertation was in ancient DNA, and I was focused on the subject of migration. Because migration as a topic is a really great way to, to, to bring in archeological approaches and biological anthropology at the same time. Um, so I ended up doing ancient DNA work and uh, computational analyses to, to, to understand migration. <clears throat> and, and that was basically how I sort of went out into the world and to look for sort of a postdoc and a tenure track job. But I did go into a postdoc and um, I decided to work on modern DNA because I still didn't feel like I had the entire skill set that I thought I should have entering in as a tenure track professor. So I did a postdoc at ASU in Tempe, Arizona with, uh, with uh, Ann Stone. And I worked on Y chromosomal variation among you know, traditional populations in, in Peru. Um, and then, you know, went on the job market and ended up getting a job at University of Tennessee. And I would say why Tennessee? I mean, Tennessee already had a reputation for being a strong department. Mm -hmm. And, um, but to be honest, since I know that your podcast is oriented is in, as much, not just so, not, it, it's oriented towards graduate students and other people aspiring to go into these fields. So I will tell this part of the story as well, is that I, because of the reputation of University of Tennessee, I actually didn't, I wasn't going to apply 
because I was scared. And if not that, um, Jane Bikestra sent me an email asking me, are you going to apply to this? And you should. And if you do, let me know and I'll write you a letter of recommendation. Hmm. If she hadn't done that, I would not have applied. And, and you know, they offered me the job. So that's why Tennessee, and I did go to Tennessee. And I have to say that another one of my strategies, which I don't know that it would work now, is that literally I applied to every single job. I didn't care what they said they wanted, I applied. You did that too, Kara? Oh yeah. Uh, the the first two rounds on the job market, I applied to anything and everything that made sense. And much like you, I actually had no intent on applying to the Notre Dame job until somebody told me to. So <laughs> wow. I, there, there are some similarities there for sure. I applied to like 50 something jobs at re religious studies departments, anything that was mm -hmm. even, if the word appeared in my dissertation, yeah, I think my the first time on the job market, I hit 107 because I applied to teach anatomy and even intro biology, all of those things. So I took the shotgun approach as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me at that time, the shotgun approach worked. I ended up getting interviews in a lot of different kinds of places. Um, and for me personally, on my side, it was fascinating because I had been only at R1 institutions. And I only knew what it would be like to be an R1 scholar. And um, it turns out that most universities are out there are R1. I mean, I should have known that by the numbers, but I experienced that. And, um, and they're really teaching oriented. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where most of the jobs are. But one thing that I learned about myself is that despite the fact that the kind of that R1 track in a way is really grueling and, and hard that I really wanted to be much more research oriented than teaching oriented. Um, and so I made the decision that what I wanted was an R1 institution. Um, so I guess that would be another reason why Tennessee. So mm -hmm. when they called me for the, you know, to let me know about the unofficial decision, I, you know, basically screamed with joy. I was really happy about it. Um, it was it was a, a place that I decided that I wanted to be at, not just because I was looking for any job out there. I was just going to say that's what we want every applicant to say, and they so rarely actually say, like, I actually do want to be here <laughs> and not just leap from here to the next mm -hmm. golden opportunity. So, yeah, it's it's a real thing to, to hear that from a potential colleague. You want someone to be Enthusiastic. Enthusiastic about not just a job, but the your job. job. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's a wonderful story because you have this kind of interesting nonlinear path as well. And uh, through this podcast, we've learned that's the norm. Uh, th there are the very few instances where it's just straight undergrad to grad to postdoc to job. Uh, so it's nice to hear the, the different ways people have come to anthropology and like the hugely important role of undergraduate mentors and getting folks into the pipeline. And so I always like hearing those stories too, because Michigan for me was the undergraduate side of, you know, the mentors that got me into the pipeline. So it's always mm -hmm. great hearing that. Chris? Yeah, I also just wanted to say, since we just had an episode with Jennifer Raff, who's also an anthropological geneticist, in contrast, it's a different story, right? It says, because her, her mother was a neuroscientist, she grew up in a lab seeing bench science like that, mm -hmm. 
and you both taken different approaches to, you know, and I think we're going to talk more about this, but to a, 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 a sub-discipline that has been fetishized as like the golden child of, of all science, right? Genetics. And, and, and so I think a lot of folks have this sort of feeling that you're expressing that they're intimidated by going into certain fields or going to certain institutions because they do seem so. Ah. Right. Yeah. So lesson here, everybody, you don't need a straight route and apply for anything and everything because you never know what might hit and do not be intimidated by reputation. I think it's a good lesson. Anyway, let's talk about your work. Uh, now that you've been settled and, and hugely, hugely successful, uh, let's talk about that American Anthropologist uh, article that is coming out very, very soon. Uh, and you start off noting that contrary to most genetic studies initiated by biological anthropologists, your project goal is to flesh out the ethnographic knowledge instead of the other way around. So using ethnographic knowledge to put biological data into context, you're actually switching that. Uh, mm -hmm. So can you explain this by way of actually introducing your project in Argentina? Okay, so the project is, um, the English title of the project is uh, Genetic Ancestry, Race, and, and National Belonging in, in Argentina. The, the aim is really to understand the, the interactions between um, genetic ancestry information and race and nation in Argentina. Um, so there's that. And then my sort of personal goal within that, which is very similar, but with a little bit of a twist, is that I wondered whether we could learn something different about how the concepts of race and nation exist and play out what they are in Argentina through the through using genetics as a tool. That is because genetics and the information that it provides is so novel to people that when they see that information, will they think about themselves, their sort of place among humans or, or in their families in different ways and talk about it in different ways so that we learn new things. So we didn't go about the project because we were interested in, in the data, the genomic data themselves, that we were, you know, going to publish those data and talk about evolutionary history or whatever. It was more once we generate these data, and, and that was important because then we could control how the, the data are generated, um, then what, what do people have to say about it? Um, and then what do people have to say about it over time, right? So um, as individuals and then groups, because we were working in a city, sort of digested the information and let it sit, macerate, work with other forms of knowledge, do ideas about race and nation, what is it, what it means to be a citizen in Argentina, what the nation of Argentina is, would that change over time because of this sort of intervention of genetic research? And two of the caveats that you shared yesterday in your talk, I think are important because not every listener is going to be familiar with the colonial uh, history of Argentina. Mm -hmm. So what what do Argentines tend to, or what's the reputation of Argentines in South America? 
the reputation. Yeah, so they are the most. Yeah, the most. Yeah, the most European. Right. Nation. But. In but as you noted, they they don't have this is genetic ancestry testing is new. This is not something they've been barraged with as we have in the United States over and over. Right. So in the United States and in Europe and and maybe in other parts of the world, uh, genetic ancestry testing has is commercialized. It's marketed uh, in individuals send information to to companies. I mean, it also is obviously an academic area of research. Um, but it's a different thing when it, when it becomes marketed in the way that it is. So a lot of individuals sort of participate in the project here, especially let's talk about just, let's stick to here in the U S in, in the project of understanding genetic ancestry, but mostly at the level of families. I don't think in the United States, the idea of nation has been interrogated, um, or that, that, that people even think beyond their own genealogies when they take these tests. Um, so in, in Argentina, there aren't really, there aren't commercial tests. And, and I think part of the reason, maybe actually probably the reason is because of the price. It's still, the price point is still too much for people in Argentina. So right. it's not, there's not a possibility for it to be marketed, but there is a thirst for it, a very similar thirst for, um, for understanding family histories in a different way, um, just as much down there as there is here. And that probably has a lot to do with the fact that Argentina and uh, the United States experience very similar histories. So as I talked about in my talk yesterday, as Chris refers to, immigration histories, very similar. The, 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 um, the timing and who came over Although in Argentina, you had many more people coming from Southern Europe, Italy and Spain than in, here in the US. I think of it a little bit like if you were to limit the United States's immigration history to say, Italy, uh, sorry, to uh, New York, where you had a lot of Italians coming in, then expand that out and then you have Argentina. Um, and then the other, the other phenomenon that's similar is the nation building process. So uh, Argentina, United States, built their nations at around the same time. And the ideas that were circulating about what constitutes a proper nation were based on sort of French philosophical principles, but more broadly, they were eugenic principles. So you, you want to build, basically, you want to build a nation that's modern and progressive, and that really means a European nation within whatever continent you, you happen to be in. So that's that's what Argentine elites were were aiming for, and um, they did it through othering and racializing, and then trying to exclude or eliminate folks that they had othered and racialized, and then um, supporting mass amounts of immigration from from Europe. And so you, as a classically trained, we'll say, biological anthropologist, doing a team study with with colleagues from a variety of different disciplines, we're seeking funding for doing a project there that from the perspective of being that classical biological anthropologist had more cultural pieces to it or was, was more cultural in nature maybe uh, mm -hmm. to reviewers. So you discuss trying to figure out which 
program in the National Science Foundation to apply to. And for listeners who aren't aware, there's biological anthropology and cultural anthropology, and then there's other stuff. What was your experience with that? Well, I mean, even to start, I was trying to think about first, if there's, if there's a category out there already that this work fit into. And in fact, one of the categories that I considered at first, because I was pretty naive about what it was, was biocultural work, right? Cause it's like, there's bio and there's cultural. So this is, we have both of those, <laughs> but when I started just in the, in this, my naive stage, looking into it, it did seem that the, the folks who were doing biocultural work is really oriented around health. So I thought, well, maybe there isn't the fit. And also I didn't see any grants out there like calling for biocultural work, like specifically, right? So it was either biological anthropology or cultural anthropology. Those were sort of the choices. Um, and then another one of our big constraints is actually the budget. Because we were um, doing genomic work, it's really expensive. And so, National Science Foundation was really the only choice for us. And then our question really then was what, okay, which program? And um, I first looked to anthropology and anthropology is represented by, um, by cultural anthropology and biological anthropology. I think there, I don't, there might be linguistic anthropology as well. I'm not sure, but those are the two that were relevant. And, and then also a, um, I had started being tuned into the, the field of science and technology studies, and that has its own program as well. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what to apply for, but I knew about the possibility that you could ask for your grant to be reviewed by multiple programs. Um, and so at that point, I did this shotgun approach again and um, asked for it to be reviewed by biological, cultural, and the STS program. Um, and the turnout with the first submission was that biological anthropology um, decided not to review it. And so I, but cultural anthropology and STS did. Um, and I, you know, it was revise and resubmit. So, um, I then called up different program officers and talked to them about it because again, one of the things I was worried about was the budget. And I decided to submit it to have its home program be STS, but then have it co-reviewed by cultural anthropology. Um, in the end, it got funded by STS. And what the program officer did, it, this is something that I that I didn't know but the budget was large, I think, for STS, but, but because the, the grant was coming from Tennessee, NSF had an additional program that would fund projects coming from certain like underrepresented states, let's say. So the program officer was able to cobble together funding from within NSF to, to meet the demands of the budget, um, but so it found its funded home. So within you, SES. But SES is about, yeah. No, go ahead. Finish up. It, it about, Chris, I know one of your questions was, you know, for folks doing biocultural work, what should they do, right? And and the first thing I guess I want to say is that I was doing all of this in 2014. So the program officers have changed. And I think the the, uh, the possibly the missions and the programs have changed. 
So what I would say is that the program officers are really always great about um, talking to people. So I would just say, write up a little blurb, uh, write up a paragraph about what your project is about. Maybe send an email in advance to the program officers, ask to talk to them. And they, they're, they're actually pretty amazing. They're very open to talking to people um, and very responsive and just talk to them about the project and, and talk about your budget. And they'll let you know um, what your possibilities are. So I would say for biocultural folks um, to apply to both. And I, and I have to say in that first round, when I, I got reviews back from cultural and STS folks, they were amazing reviews. I learned a lot from what the reviewers had to say. So it was even worth it on my end to get all of those reviews from people from different, from dis from different disciplines. Yeah, I don't think I can overemphasize how important it is to get in touch with program officers. And we're, I think we're really fortunate right now with NSF where we have Rebecca Farrell, Siobhan Madison, and now Robin Bernstein on the team. And they are all so willing to talk to people and try to find the best fit for your project. So another big lesson to folks at home. Jeff Mance is also great, another cultural person. Oh, I don't know Jeff, but there we go. Uh, anyway, so I actually want to hit on something because, I mean, you have struck a chord with me, but it, but also it's something that we are all dealing with within the discipline of anthropology right now of what is biocultural work and then how do we evaluate the cultural part and the biological part. And, you know, this depends a lot on institutional culture and in the ways in which these things are really assessed. And so a personal example of something that I'm currently dealing with, having my, my record looked at quite closely, is I was recently told that having a placement in Ethos, which is an excellent placement for cultural and medical anthropology, does me no good as a biological anthropologist. And that as a biological anthropologist, I should not focus on, you know, kind of those collaborations with cultural anthropologists, you know, truly doing the integrative anthropological work that we tout that we do and we encourage our grad students to do, but then when the rubber hits the road, in a way I'm almost being punished. And so I kind of mm -hmm. want to hear your take on that and, and how we as a discipline need to kind of move away from these really hard walled boxes that we are trying to put people into because it's making anthropology worse in the end and not better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And and I, I think it's important to, to be aware of, of how those boundaries work the so-called boundary work, <laughs> um, that that whatever is seemed to be scientific is given priority, is uh, or not given priority, but it's it's given more authority, and institutions want you to be able to pursue scientific work. I think so. This is like this is what I think. It's not like I've done research on this, but my my perception is, is that this is because science brings in research money. Um, and so it's given, if you're doing scientific work, it, it bring, gives you higher authority. And so if you are a scientist and you're doing not scientific work, then people wonder what the hell you're doing. Um, like, how does that even make sense um, in, in the structures that we live under? So um, in anthropology, it's, uh, it is odd because we, we do think of ourselves as as being sort of kumbaya holistic integrative look where all of us are under this big tent 
and that creates all sorts of collaborative opportunities. But there are a lot of barriers to those opportunities, um, and a lot of them are institutionally driven. But within anthropology itself, um, and I noticed that I think doing with doing genetics work, right? The expectations around what people think I should be doing because I do genetics work and I have these expensive labs with expensive equipment. So a lot of institutions put in a lot of money, like when you come in, right? So they expect a lot of money to come out of you. <laughs> and when that doesn't happen, um, it, it creates it creates a problem. Like it, it creates a situation in which people question who you are and what you're doing in that position. Um, so, um, and, and I guess more generally, what I wanted to say is that um, when I took a, a sort of a step back from anthropology, a lot of people have talked about this already, but I think I, I finally realized it for myself is that a lot of the fracture lines in anthropology are around that nature culture divide that is so old, right? Beyond, way beyond the creation of our discipline um, to the point where we don't really notice it that way. We think of our fractures more as like among subdisciplines, but it's really de depending on where you are in the nature culture divide, right? You are not only classified differently, but the expectations are different. And depending on your direction of crossing, you, the, the cost to you. So in the article, so you, you mentioned the, the, the expression boundary work and you, you discussed this in the article. Can you tell us what you mean by that and, and uh, uh, how that, that, that feeds into uh, your call to interrogate the dynamics of, of, our, of, our, mm -hmm. of, of our boundary work? Like what, what does that mean? It, yeah, it, well, first of all, just by using the term, it, it, it says that there are boundaries and um, and the boundary work refers to all of the the energy and the kinds of energy really that we put into maintaining those boundaries and maintaining either the rigidity or the the movement right through and around those boundaries and so that can take multiple forms so one form is just what we were talking about um you know the 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 favor the the authority the favor the authority given to science um, based work and um, what that should look like and what outputs um, should be generated from that kind of work, for example. And if you if you delve into sort of the cultural work, you know the outputs aren't going to be as necessarily lucrative, perhaps or bring as much prestige to an institution, right? So um, you, uh, I mean, maybe as an example of, of how you see the outcome of, of that boundary work in my institution, um, you know, you get different grants from different, different places. Um, the only time that I ever got sort of, I got a actual like letter on letterhead with a real signature from the institution congratulating me on getting a grant was when I got that NSF grant, which is a prestigious and with high budget, right? So, um, so you're getting thanked, right, for doing certain work, but not thanked for other work. That's boundary work. Um, another form that boundary work takes is 
um, when you when you stop yourself from doing certain work because you're worried about the effect on your career, you know, whether or not, you know, someone else may come back at you and say, well, okay, but you thought this, but it's probably true because we, we give kudos to people for all these things all the time, or, you know, funding is given for this and that. Um, and it's certain perceptions of things, right? And Kara, by you mentioning sort of similar perceptions means that regardless of the boundary is just here of like, you know, what happened. Chris, are you there? Is it me? Sorry, I'm muted. Yeah, is she frozen for you too? She is, yeah. Okay, damn it, she's probably saying all these really important things. Yeah, no, I think she she got she got the the tail end. You were talking about the, the boundary work of interrogating your own uh you know like what choices you make within an institution based on perceived fear or real you know realistic fear of retaliation or institutional censure yeah so mm. that experience yeah. I suppose that experience of peer review sort of preps you for what you may experience when you go up for promotion in the academic system so you're afraid of those you know reviewer twos <laughs> Wow, that's a really good point. Yeah, that anonymous troll reviewer in your in your package. You just had a bad day and took it out on your your letter. Kara, mm -hmm. are you still having uh, technical difficulties there? I'm here. My guess is Graciela can't hear me. Chris, can you hear me? I do hear you, but yeah. Okay, she's... so you're gonna have to finish up with okay. me. Yeah. I'll All right. sit here awkwardly. Cares browser is in low storage mode. So so let me let let's this has been great. Let's let's um wrap up with our final question, which is a little bit more about you. What's 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 next for you research-wise? And then also we want to know more about what completes you as a human being. So what do you do when you're not anthropologizing? What's what's fun for you? Okay, so let's see, next project. Well, there is a project that I'm working on. I don't know where it's going. It's um, so while 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 I've been working on this project in Argentina, which is which is still not done. Um, one of the the things that came up for me early on, because a, a set of literature that I had read uh, was in in bioethics, and um, what I was reading at the time was was how you know we needed to move from a model of individual informed consent to be thinking about group consent right because individuals are oftentimes consenting for a group uh, of people um, without maybe knowing it because of the interpretations that researchers end up making in their in their research right so um so so that in the in the bioethics literature that led to a view of viewing um, research subjects as research participants but then sort of the next move was to be thinking about really not just research participants but collaborators in your research so research partnerships and so we've this is where everyone i think at this point has has really heard about that and is thinking about community partnerships, things like that. So I had been thinking about that for a while. What would that look like? And I think um, that setting up, first of all, I think setting up something like that takes a really long time. 
because you really do have to establish a different kind of rapport with people. Um, it's a trust relation, but also you need to break down some of the um, perceived hierarchies like between uh, and, and real hierarchies in a way between researchers and the researched. Um, and so what, so the, my next project is, um, working itself out and it is working with an organization called black and Appalachia in East Tennessee, where I live. This is an organization founded by, uh, Will Isom, who's the director. He actually, I met him a long time ago when I moved to Knoxville and we became friends long before he established black and Appalachia. But even at that time, Will was really per, interested in, in pursuing ways to um, provide records, genealogical records, historical records to um, to Black folks in Appalachia. Um, not only, as I understand it, to to be able to, to help. Um, African Americans in the area to to sort of recover their genealogical histories because we know that that's been ripped away from them, right? But um, but also to to visibilize blacks in Appalachia because when we think about Appalachia, I think the stereotype is whites, maybe low socioeconomic status, but whites, right? But it turns out there are a lot of Blacks, African Americans in Appalachia who, who have just as responsible for creating Appalachia. So, so I think that is one of the sort of the primary missions of of the organization Black in Appalachia. So, Will and I have talked a long time for a long time about um, the use of DNA, particularly in like the recovery of genealogies of family histories. And now we're talking about it more for recovery of like broader history of blacks in Appalachia. And, but that's, that's him and me talking. And so we're in the process of um, talking to, to folks, community members in, in the Appalachian region. And what I've done for my part right now is that I created a, like a menu, like a menu of things based on my expertise of what we can do with DNA. I have not really talked to anybody yet. Will has been the one who's been reaching out to folks to gauge if there's any interest at all. Um, next step is actually next month that I'll be presenting myself and talking to people and talking about the menu of options. So um, we'll see. I don't even know what project this is going to be. <laughs> I love that. That's a but, great model. Yeah, but it'll be something. Yeah. But it'll be. So I'll point out though that this is something I think that I can only afford now with tenure, right? So this is not something that you can do when you're probationary. Like yeah. you have to, you are forced to pick the low hanging fruit, and and not take those risks, unfortunately, for fear of external review or two. Um, and um, but I have the safety. Of, I have the time. I have enough of a publication record behind now right it needs to be something yeah so so that's where i'm going yeah, and then great. as for it's me. um yeah what do you do for fun what what does crustiella <laughs> and her family do when they're not anthropologizing well I, this is going to sound really cheesy because i really think about the question what completes me and really like what completes me is to be able to spend quality time with my sweetie 
So, and, and it's not necessarily the two of us sort of in the house and I'm working and he's doing his work. And that's great. It's really nice to have that, but to be able to, to go out and do other things. And, and oftentimes it's travel and we like to go spend time um, in oh, going over to North Carolina and spending time in Asheville and eating good food. And um, the other thing that we uh, started doing during the pandemic is that I bought a kayak. He has a canoe. We go out into the amazing Tennessee rivers and, and experience, you know, the beauty of Tennessee. Cool. And I'm jealous. I got to I drive by Asheville all the time and my favorite bands from there. And I am always trying to get my ass over there, but I, I never have. Graciela, it has been truly a pleasure both to have you here in person to have you frozen temporarily. There we go. <laughs> Just kidding. It's been, it's been, it's, I was saying you got frozen. It's been a real pleasure to have you come down to Alabama. I so enjoyed spending time with you yesterday. Your talk was awesome. Our faculty loved it. Our students loved it. Dinner was great. And thanks for hanging around this morning and, and uh, enjoying our, our lovely loft there.